Ladies and gentlemen, my pleasure, my honor. Chuck C. Thank you. I'm Chuck C. and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. There was a chap who was uh, president of Whittier College who had the very common name of uh, Joe. He was also very small in stature and didn't look like too much. But he had the practically the entire alphabet after his name. And uh, he was in Who's Who World, Who's Who, and everything else. I had the privilege of being in a meeting where he was talking. And the speaker was Irish also. I mean, the, the uh, chairman was Irish also. And he gave this guy quite a send-off. And Jonesy got up and he couldn't hardly clear the podium, you know. And he said, that reminds me of the staff who was playing baseball down in the Texas East. And he was real good. Every time they delivered the ball to him, he put it over his head. And so he moved up to Mason. And the first picture he faced in the Macy's was uh, Walter Johnson, the big save. And old Walter wound up and let one go, and it hit the Texas Mets, and the umpire says, she arrived once. The next one, and the next. And after the first strike was called, the last walked back to the umpire, and he says, uh, did you see that? And the umpire says, I think he did. Well, he says, I didn't, but it sounded a little high to me. <laughs> that introduction sounded a little high to me, too. But after this meeting is over, I'm going to have to leave. And there's a question in my mind that's been puzzling me for the last five years. When I was in this room before, I heard a very detailed report on the finances of the East Toronto Men's Tag Group. It covered five years. And in the five years, they had collected $5,700.37. And they had spent 5700 And that only left them 37 cents in the treasury, and they hadn't paid my fare yet. <laughs> I don't want to leave without knowing whether or not they're out of the hole now. <laughs> now... I've heard a few remarks about the chances of this set up. It wasn't known whether or not you were going to get out free. Might send a few bills to the groups about the province. 
And I have a suggestion for y'all. Inasmuch as nobody here could listen fast enough to hear Norm's talk. I suggest that you transcribe it, separate the words a little bit, and you can use parts of it for the next five years, and nobody will hear it. I have known Wynn, who was our speaker yesterday afternoon, for some 24 years. And uh, she's not always as gracious as she was yesterday. <laughs> Down in my country, uh, several people are in the habit of uh, quoting me. Wrong, most of the time. But quoting is just the same. And when you used to get up to talk, and she'd say, my name is Wynn, and I, as Chuck says, am an alcoholic. <laughs> 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 Incidentally, I happened to be in that room that she was talking about, where the bird was flying in the rafters. And she was wondering whether or not it was there. Well, somebody mentioned that it was, really. I was there that night, and that's almost 24 years ago. And the lady that she spoke of, Myrtle, was one of my most beloved friends, and it was my little chore to take her to her last meeting. I gave her eulogy when she left it. And so, of course, Wynne got to be pretty good, but that talked her. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't thank your committee, each and all of them, and your chairman for having me up here again. I would imagine that this might be my farewell. <laughs> this is the third time I have been here to Jack in your first city, and I don't think you could have much more of that. So, I will uh, give you the entire load. <laughs> <laughs> you. <laughs> I said I'm an alcoholic. I'm neither proud of it nor am I ashamed of it. That's the way it is with me. I am an alcoholic. Something has to happen to you and to me before we can say I am an alcoholic. If anyone of you had called me an alcoholic 30 years ago, and I could have gotten up off the floor, I'd have kicked you right in the mouth if I could have seen you. That's something that nobody must know, not even me. And I went to any length to keep anybody from knowing it, including myself. So something has to happen to us before we can say I'm an alcoholic. 
And I believe that something, whatever it is, may be the most significant single thing that ever happened to any of us between the great and the great. That day when we can and do say to ourselves, if there be fault, it is mine. When we can and do accept ourselves exactly as we are, where we are right now. That's a tremendous occasion. Because when this happens, we then can receive help. But until it happens, we cannot receive help. We are suitably detached. We have the ability of hearing what we want to hear and seeing what we want to see and interpreting the way we want to interpret it. Some, maybe 17 years ago, I was in Little Rock, Arkansas with our late beloved servant, Bernie Smith. He was then chairman of the board of trustees, a non-alcoholic. Bernie died just after our experience in Miami this year at the International Convention. But Bernie and I were there at a conference in Little Rock, Arkansas. We were having dinner. And Bernie said to me, Chuck, if you'd been examined by a board of experts, in your early 20s, and they had told you if you kept on drinking, these things would happen, and had enumerated all the things that eventually did happen to you, would you have stopped drinking? And I said, why no, Bernie? And he didn't stop. And he said, I mean a board of unquestioned experts. And I said, by whose authority, Bernie? <laughs> You see, you and I always do that liquor should get the other fellow. But it shouldn't get us. We were different. We were too smart. So, it didn't apply to us. I'm convinced that if the entire population of our fellowship had called on me on March 30 days before I came calling in here, I would have thanked them for coming. I would have told them I was glad they had found a way to take care of their problems. I would have agreed with them that I was worth saving. But then I would have reminded them that they were on my property and I'd like for them to get off. <laughs> that I'd take care of my own problems in my own way. Many of you have heard this story, so I'm not going to give you much of it. But 90 days before I came calling into this fellowship, my next to the last drunk had come to a close. And uh, I had uh, finished up my sojourn in bed with a bottle. That's the way I finished all of them in the last 10 years. This one, as many of you remember, I've done a little touring. 
I'd made a $6,000, a 6,000-mile 6, run in a blackout. And I'd gotten back home and finished the bed. And maybe 24, 36 hours after my last drunk, I'd gone fishing after a uh, glass of buttermilk. Dick and Mrs. C were sitting in the living room. They heard me let out a yell and heard me hit the floor. And they came trotting out there, expecting to find me in an alcohol convulsion. Which also was my want, but I wasn't convulsing. Wasn't doing anything. I was just lying there on the kitchen floor, peaceful as anybody ever saw. I was excuse the color, they tell me. I was blue. And they couldn't wake me up, and they got all exercise about it, and got the oxygen squad in the Beverly Hills Shooting Hospital to come down. I have a peculiar sense of humor. I but nearly always have to laugh at this. Remember when you used to come off the drunk and found that everybody in town were looking for you? 90% of them just tell you they never want to see you again. <laughs> Why in the hell they had to talk us down to tell us and they wanted to see us again? Why didn't they leave us alone? But no, they had to find us and tell us. Well, I'm quite sure that my wife and kids have been praying for me to die for at least five years. They come out of the kitchen and find me dead and they get all exercise. So they get the oxygen squad down there. And I remember, of course, what happened after I came to. There's a young doctor with him, and he told them, told me that, uh, to all intents and purposes, I've been dead, that they'd had a pretty rough time bringing me around, that in his opinion, nobody would ever be able to bring me back again under those circumstances, and he told me that if he was me, he wouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> I got the impression that he was against it. Well, maybe it's 24, 36 hours after that, I was able to get the old dirty bathrobe on and start walking up and down the living room, at the living room floor. Now, that's the only way I ever knew how to sober up. I never heard of a dying out place until I got into Alcoholics Anonymous. And then it was too late for me. I haven't had to dry out since. So the only way I knew was to walk it off. And here I am walking up and down the living room floor, sweating, freezing, shaking, dying, and walking. Mr. C was standing over the fireplace. We had a corner fireplace in the living room. And I was walking away from her, and I remember just as if it were yesterday. She said to me as I walked away, Chuck, don't you think you might get a little help if you'd read the book Alcoholics Anonymous? And I turned on her like a lion. I said, you, my very own wife, suggesting that I read a book written by a bunch of drunks. I have read all the good books for the good authors, and you know why I said you wound me deeply. Mind you, I could have been dead 48 hours before, and you wound me deeply. And I polished her off completely by saying, and besides, I can write a better book than that myself. Now, that was not more than 90 days before I came crawling in to Alcoholics Anonymous. 
So we can't hear till we can hear, and we can't see till we can see. This is a fine-looking bunch of people we have here with us today. I went out and said hello to people in the other room, and you're a fine-looking bunch. And if there's anybody here this afternoon who hasn't done so, who might this afternoon decide that he wants what we have and become willing to go to any length to get it, he or she can start a lifetime of sobriety one day at a time, starting now. It is never necessary for you or for me to take another drink. If sobriety is more important to us than life itself, when that time comes, we either have to drink or die. Something happens. There is a miracle here. And that something happened to me in January 1946. I'd had a little good fortune, and I'll quickly run through this. On the Friday before Christmas, 1945, my boss had called me in, and he said to me, Charlie, I'm Charlie in business. That's the way we kept our calls separated, you know. I'd come in and my girl had hand me a heap of tough calls, you know, a whole handful of them, and one or two Charlie calls. <laughs> so, the boss called me in and he says, Charlie, you've had a lot of trouble this year. Now, I didn't mention booze. But he knew that I knew what he meant when he said trouble. And being a non-alcoholic, he had it all figured out. He says, I think... I know the trouble. He says, I think you're under too much pressure. And I was. He didn't know how right he was. <laughs> I think you're under too much pressure, and I'm going to take a little pressure off of you. So instead of canning me, as he had every reason in the world to, he gave me $3,000 for Christmas present. The Friday before Christmas, 1945. Now, if there's anything worse for an alcoholic than bad fortune, it's good fortune. <laughs> so I got drunk on the way home. Now, it's periodic the last ten years that I drank, and I never got drunk on the way home. Periodic are uh, another... You know, we have to sober up. There's no way that an alcoholic, uh, a periodic alcoholic, can keep from sobering up. Because we also are pigs. We drink everything there is that we tend to chew. <laughs> and we drink it all. We don't mess around with it. We drink it all. And the time comes when we can't get it down, we can't get it up, we can't live, and we can't die. So we have to sober up. And as soon as it's possible, we go on a health kick. We eat well, we sleep well, we drink lots of milk, we eat vitamins for the bucket. 
and we get strong enough, we exercise a little. And when we get well physically, we then analyze our last stroke. We see where we made our mistakes. And we decide not to do it that way anymore. And when we get everything in line, you know, everything's right in the racket belongs in, we start sampling. And we sample our way right on back to bed. Three addicts never taper off. We always taper on.
And every once in a while, one of my non-alcoholic friends comes into my life again. And he says, by the way, uh, how's your heart? <laughs> the only thing that ever happened to my heart, every time I cheat, I went out the back window. <laughs> you know, making it down south. So, you don't get drunk in a hurry when you're periodic. Now, I couldn't even investigate alcoholics anonymous until I had run out of everything, including choice. As long as I had choice, my choice was never to come to alcoholics anonymous. The very idea of me coming to a bunch of drunks for help was absolutely obnoxious to me. Because by this time, I didn't care for the human race. I didn't even like the good ones. And the drunk I hate was a passion. Because you see, I was a drunk and I hated me and I hated all drunks. And I couldn't even investigate. Until I'd lost everything, including choice. We have a little line in the book that I don't believe is meant to convey what I'm about to use it for. It says, be not discouraged. Now, if you happen to be a, an alcoholic and you're still nipping, uh, be not discouraged. The time will come when there ain't no place else to go. And you'll come here, as I did, in 1946. Because I started that drunk Friday before Christmas. And it ended up sometime after the middle of January. And it was total oblivion for that entire time. Mr. C. was telling his story. She would say that when I went to bed to drink, I drank seven quarts of whiskey every three days. Now, I don't tell you that's impressive. I don't even know that I did. I wasn't there. I just have to take her opinion. Don't make too much difference how much it is anyway, so I said to you. But I was dead drunk until sometime after the middle of January. And I came to, I had nothing in my system but liquor. I didn't drink, I didn't eat when I drank. And so there was nothing in my body but whiskey. And yet I came through with the clearest head I've ever known in my entire lifetime. I knew without knowing why that I'd lost the battle of life. I knew why my good wife, after 20 years, was divorcing me. And I knew she should have done it 10 years before. And I knew why our kids wouldn't come home when I was around. I also knew why that same boss who sent work to the house, that if I ever stepped foot in the plant again, he was going to throw me through the window. I accepted the fact that morning that everything dear to me in life was gone. And that I was not entitled to have it back. And it suddenly became very necessary for me to be sober to die. Now, I knew I was going to die. Didn't care. I'd come that close to it the time before. So, this also was accepted. I was going to die. But I must be sober to die. Because I didn't want to die with the record. 
I didn't want the kids and the mother to remember me as nothing but a tongue-chewing, babbling idiot drunk. And I said to myself that morning, if I ever live to get out of this bed, I will find alcoholics anonymous. And immediately, the curtain dropped. The little period of sanity was gone. I was again drunk, sick, and insane. And I had to die many, many times in the next ten days. As you know, every nerve center in my body was screaming for whiskey. But everything in me was, how long can I live without a drink? And from the second I said to myself, if I ever live to get out of this bed, I'll find AA until right now. I have never had a drink of whiskey or a sedating or tranquilizing pill of any kind. And it is for this reason, along with many others, that I say to you that insofar as I am able to perceive, a decision made with the entire man, spirit, soul, and body, carries its own mathematics. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. And we don't have to drink. We don't have to drink. If that decision is total, arriving at this point is pretty rough. But after we arrive at that point, it's not that rough at all. Now, when I got able to hunt for alcoholics anonymous, I didn't know where to find it. It never occurred to me that it was in the phone book. It was anonymous, wasn't it? I only knew two things about it. The drunk helped drunks and didn't drink. And it was called Alcoholics Anonymous. So I never occurred to me to look in the phone book. So I called people that I knew and asked them if they knew anybody that knew anybody in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got a telephone number. It was the number of the motion picture actor, and I called him up, and we talked a bit, and he says, well, have you had a drink today? And I said, no. After we said a few things, he says, well, don't take one. He says, I'm working nights right now, and I can't take you to meetings tonight, but don't drink, and call me again tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow night I won't be working, and I'll take you to meetings. So I called him tomorrow, and we talked a little, and he said, you had a drink today. And I said, no. But he says, don't take one. I'm still working. <laughs> Call me tomorrow. Tomorrow I called him, and he started out, and I said, uh-uh, don't give me that receipt. You're still working. Where is there a meeting that I can go to? And he told me. And I went. I never had a sponsor in this program. From that day to this, I went to my first meeting. Totally alone by myself. Now I say that because I'm by myself an awful lot anymore, but I'm never alone. There's a big difference here. That night I was totally alone by myself. I had to prepare for this little procedure because I didn't know what in the, well, I didn't know what I was going to get into. I didn't know that it would be cricket for me to be seen 
in the vicinity of where you guys were meeting. So I disguised myself a little. I had two good garments. I had a camel's hair top coat with a belt around the middle and a big collar. And a hat with plenty of your feet. I still wear it. It has a white brim on it. So I put this coat on and pulled that collar up around my head and this hat and pulled that brim down over my face. And I sallied forth. The meat was on the ground floor in the Veterans Foreign Wars Hall at Wilshire and Santa Monica Boulevard in Beverly Hills. And I walked up the door and looked in and there were a bunch of you there. And, uh, quite a difference in the looks of them and today we're talking about it here at the table tonight. That's me. Came out of average 55. In age. And, uh, they were mostly men. Now, this, the face of Alcoholics Anonymous changed considerably. The age has gone way down. I'm in many meetings now where the average age is not 30. And they're better looking than we were. The female proportion has changed considerably also. I'm in many meetings today where the females outnumber us. And I'm getting worried. They're gaining on us too fast. But that helps change the appearance of Alcoholics Anonymous Chief. But here I am standing the door looking at you, and you're all in the middle of the room, jack, 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 and, you know, nobody listening, everybody talking, just like it's always been for the last 25 years. I've wondered for 25 years how in the hell we ever learn anything, because nobody ever listens. <laughs> And it was all happy talk. Well, you didn't look like me, and you weren't dressed like me, and you most certainly weren't talking like me. So my conclusion was rather rapid. They'd given me the wrong night. These were the veterans and their wives, and they were there for a party. And I was going to have to leave and come back and act drunk to them. And I'm telling you something, I was dead when I went. But when I turned to leave, there was no hope. But some monkey in there had been watching me, and he came trotting over the door. And he called to me, he says, Mister, were you looking for somebody? And I said, No, sir. Well, he said, What were you looking for? And thinking he was a veteran, I said, Well, if it's with interest, sir, I was looking for society. And this, then, is the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. Immediately, the guy lit up like Christmas tree. His entire bearing changed. Everything about it changed. Instantly. And it was obvious to me in the shape I was in that he was glad I was there. Now, mind you, I'd never seen this man before. And the people that knew me, knew me including those of my own flesh and blood, wouldn't look at me. And here's a stranger that's so glad I'm there. He lights up like a sister. This is the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous right here. Without this, no recovery. No recoveries at all. Because we do not get sober by principles or profundity. We are allowed to get sober by the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
and you spell it L-O-V-E, love. That is the only thing that would have allowed that guy to light up because I was no bargain. I've just been drunk, dead drunk, for either three or four weeks. I don't know. I'll never know within ten days when I got here, and it's not that important. But this guy was glad I was there. And I was hooked before he ever opened his mouth. And when he opened his mouth, these are the words that came out. Why, take off your hat and coat. You're in the right place. And he took me and rocked me to sleep. Now, for those who are new, these are the things they told me in the next little while. They told me it was the first drink of killing. They said if you be an alcoholic, one drink is too many and a thousand out of that. Now, I had drunk for 25 years. And it had never occurred to me one time that it was the first drink. I thought it was the last challenge. I was trying to find, find a way to cut it off before the trouble started, you see. It never occurred to me. Particularly when a periodic don't get drunk on one drink. We take a little time to get drunk. Because there's one drink too many and a thousand aren't enough. And I got to thinking about it. And I could see that it was just a question of time between that first flood after a period of sobriety and me going to bed and drinking the clock around. So I bought that one. The, the second thing he told me was today is the day we don't drink. This is the day we don't drink. Oh, God, how beautiful that is. If you'd have told me you got to be sober 25 years, I'd have fallen dead. You know? Nobody ever stays sober 25 years. 25 days, no. But the guy didn't say that. He says, today's the day we don't drink. Now he says, if a day is too long, how about an hour? Then you can live for an hour without drinking. Put your life on the basis of how long you can live without a drink. Live that long and then start over. But don't drink. And again, he said something that I bought. He says, regardless of how long you live in Alcoholics Anonymous, Never stretch that time more than 24 hours. That's as long as you'll ever live in AA. And that has been my life for 9,200 days. I never worked for next Tuesday or for a birthday. This is my day. I have no past. I want no future. And that's the way it's been with me. One of the greatest lessons I ever learned. At first, of course, just for sobriety. But the time I discovered I was sober, it has become a habit in all departments of my life and has been ever since. Beautiful way to live. The next thing he told me was stay close to us. There's more wisdom, says he, in this room tonight about your problem and its answer than in any other room on the face of the earth, except another room where Alcoholics Anonymous members are meeting. Stay close to us. Get into as many meetings as you can. And I bought that one. And I've done just that. I've averaged not less than four and probably near five meetings a week in Alcoholics Anonymous for 25 years. And I haven't gone to one too many. I haven't gone to one too many. Because, you see, I 
use every resource that I had before I got here. Every resource I had, I put in place. My wife, our home, our ship, my job, my health, my sanity, and my money, I put in place. And I lost. So it's necessary that I be able to live one day at a time without drinking. Because physical sobriety and life are synonymous with me. I can't have one without the other. And I haven't uh, been taken drunk in an AA meeting yet. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> so I highly recommend it. The next thing you told me is what's wrong with it. And this was a this was up. Oh, what a beautiful thing this was. Now I had gone in my last ten years to many, many sources for help. And I have no judgment for any of the people I'm mentioning. I love them all. One of them was to the clergy, members of the club. And I could get no help. One of them was to the men of medicine. And I could get no help. And one of them was the people who knew more psychiatry than there is. <laughs> Every time one of them talks to me about willpower, backbone, stand up being a man. And this kills me to this day. 25 years, and it still just kills me dead. Because, you see, I knew there was nothing wrong with my backbone. I was born with a pitchfork in my hand. I had worked all my life. I'd been quite an athlete in my day. And my backbone was entirely adequate. I hadn't had a bit of trouble with it. Willpower. If there was ever a bunch of people that has willpower, it's the drunks of the world. There's nobody that's got the willpower to do that. Every time I hear an alcoholic talking about willpower, I want to say to him, listen, pup. How many times have you crawled a mile in the mud in the dark just to get a bucket of ice? <laughs> well, that's part of the course for a drunk. I get liquor in Kansas on election day if it fell on Sunday. Depended only on how high I was off the sidewalk, how long it took. Boy, we got willpower. Willpower might not be so hot, but the willpower is awful good. And then the standing up and being a man department, we give them cards and space. If there was ever a bunch of philosophers on earth, it's us. We know the answer to everybody's problem but ours. One of the things that has endured us to the non-alcoholic population is that we have known what was the matter with them and we were not at all afraid to tell them. <laughs> that is not a good way. And my, I think it's one of the greatest things I ever learned. And it's the only intellectual knowledge we need. That we didn't have when we got here. That's the nature of a problem. Why can't I successfully drink whiskey? 
Because I'm an alcoholic. What is an alcoholic? An alcoholic is a man or a woman who suffers with the disease of alcoholism. I had never heard this expression in my life. Nobody had ever said to me the disease of alcoholism. And yet I've remained with you to find that informed medical opinion classifies alcoholism as amongst the top three killers in the country today. Many of them put it first. None of them put it less than fourth as a killer. Second only to one of a social disease is the cause for permanent insanity. And medically speaking, it's incurable. And that's what I got. I am an alcoholic. Very serious deal. It's a matter of life or death, and it's my life. Now they define the disease as a disease of a twofold nature. And how they the body coupled with an obsession of the mind. According to the doctor, it's both mental and physical. Now there's nobody that knows the difference between my body and that of a non-alcoholic. They've been researching this day for years in medical science. But nobody knows. The physical difference, so we spend no time on that. But there are a couple of things about the physical part of the disease that I must forever keep uppermost in my mind. Number one, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. There's nobody, there's not one case in, a, in medical history where anybody like me ever returns to such things. And nobody amongst us has ever done it. So, I must always remember that. Secondly, the physical part of the disease gets worse with the passage of time, even during long extended periods of total absence. It kills lots of junk. It's awful hard for us to get this through our head, because we have pretty good forgetters along with everything else. You know, when we start getting well, the old subconscious starts telling us, you're building up some good drinking time. <laughs> you know, I'm building me up some good drinking time. I'm getting strong. There's no such thing as an alcoholic building up any good drinking time. I am 25 years worse off so far as successfully drinking liquor is concerned than it was when I got here. And I was not entirely in robust health when I came. And I know it, and I don't have to take a drink to prove it. Because I have been close to and active in this program for 25 years. And when you're close to and active in, all you got to do is keep your eyes open. Your friends will take it for you. Just keep your eyes open. Not going to be very nice to keep your eyes open because you're going to have to watch a lot of them die. And many of them you would rather die yourself because you love them like brothers and sisters. But you have to watch them die. And that again is what's up left. But it's very effective. There's been no time in my 25 years when I had had toy with the idea. Maybe I can handle a little light wine and beer, you know. I don't have to bother with that, because I know better. I've had to watch too many of them die. And so I want to keep that in my mind, uppermost in my mind forever. The physical part of the disease gets worse with the passage of time, even during long extensions to the And lastly, there's no cure for the body. With all the money in Canada, it wouldn't be enough to send one of us someplace to get our bodies made over to us and successfully drink. We had an old boy, and she did indeed 
Saturday night we were rocking the other night. And he came out of the seven years just floored me. He said, you know something? If Howard Hughes had a drinking problem, he'd have to come to us for help. <laughs> Well, there's been some rumor that he was getting a divorce, and some of us have been standing around there saying to each other, I wonder how they're going to slide up the free world. You know? And yet there's old loud dogs. You know, you had a drinking problem. You'd have to come to us, yeah. And that's the way it is. So we accept this fact and turn to the other half of the street. And that's what our program is all about. Somebody said it's funny. You see, we, we don't come here to learn how to get sober. Everyone ought to get sober. Even chronic alcoholics get sober. Because they get to walk around us someplace and depend on shit. You know? Pass them away someplace and don't give them any liquor. And they have to get sober. And as periodic, we have to get sober. We can't keep them. So we've been sober many, many times, but to remain sober, not to take that next thing. And that's what our program's all about. To make it unnecessary for us to take that next thing. Now, people down there in the state, the American Medical Association says, alcoholism is a disease, it has symptoms, it is treatable but not curable. And the only way that any alcoholic can successfully live is not to take that next drink. But they can't tell us how not to take that next drink. But our program does. Our book was written, they tell us, to tell us precisely how to get sober in Satan. To rid ourselves of a seemingly hopeless physical and mental condition. That's our focus. Now all we have to do is fulfill the conditions broken. That's all we have to do. And we don't have to drink. I haven't quit drinking yet. Two things that I haven't done. I haven't quit drinking. And I haven't had a drink in 9,200 days. And I haven't quit smoking. And I haven't smoked two years, a couple of months, one month. <laughs> Don't clap for that because I never did either one of them intentionally. I drank until I could no longer drink and survive. And I haven't had six years. I smoked until I had just one choice, either breathing or smoking. <laughs> I chose breathing. I'm a sissy. So I had no trouble with either one of them. But kid and quit, I just delayed it. And I'm still delayed. My counsel is never quit nothing. Because if you quit something, you think you're taking something away from yourself. And you've thrown up a psychological roadblock. So just delay it. And it's a sin. Our decision, however, if we be alcoholic, is not to quit drinking. It's that we can't quit. That's our decision. We can't quit. We need help. 
We need help. And of course, we have to come to see ourselves as we are before we can get the help. I will put it like this and I'll hurry along. We learned that we had to fully conceive to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. To not only admit, but to accept the fact that we need help. Then the decision has to be complete. Sobriety has to be number one. Number one. On our history. I'm one who believes that unless and or until sobriety becomes number one, we can't have it. And unless it remains number one, we can't keep it. So those two conditions precede step one. And then we've got 12 steps. One to 12. And the program, he says, here are the steps we took. You know. Here are the steps we took. Now, let's just stick with these steps because uh, for us, that's a lousy sentence. There's not a big word in it. <laughs> what else is going to read that and think it means anything? We like big words, you know. Psychedelic. Now, there's a word for you. I don't know what it means, but I sure like the word trauma. I hear them just throwing around traumas. I don't know what a trauma is, but it's a good word. If it is a psychedelic trauma, <laughs> well, that's what we need. We are all. And then lousy sentence, here are the steps we took. And it don't mean nothing at all but life. That's all it means. We're now the All we got to do is take these steps. Apply them to ourselves as honestly as we know how. One day at a time. And something happens and we don't have to think. Don't take them and nothing happens. So you keep drinking. It's that simple. <clears throat> now the reason that these first two conditions are in there is because that first step is a twofold admission of truth. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, physical, that our lives had become unmanageable mental. We've lost the battle twice over. Now what else is going to admit that he's lost the battle? You know? I don't think any of you ever ran into the bar and said, Look, Joe, I'm powerless over alcohol, my life's unmanageable. Give me a medal. <laughs> that is not alcoholic thinking. Something's got to happen. You know. A twofold addition is the truth. We've lost about it twice over. The next one is a left-handed admission that we're not. <laughs> Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore sanity. There's no necessity of restoring sane people to sanity. The backhanded admission we're not in the fruitcake. And that isn't our hard thinking. And the third step then we got to turn over the key. Mother's just killed me. The only way anybody ever got my keys in the last ten years of my drinking was to wait till I pass out. 
I just come out of a club at 3 o'clock in the morning with my wife for years. Get over to the parking lot and she said, Honey, give me the keys. I'll drive. Say, Who's car? Who's car are you going to drive? This car's mine. You're going to miss it. <laughs> well, you might be there at daylight. You wouldn't have gone any place if you still got the keys. And the third step says you got to get money. We made a decision to send our will and life over to Sheriff's office. Now, these are the reasons that you have to come to see that we need help from any place. Now, it doesn't say there that you got to come here believing. It says we came to believe. And again, if you come here not believing and keep coming and keep your eyes open, you'll come to believe. You can't see what goes on in Alcoholics Anonymous. Without coming to believe, there's too many miracles. Too many miracles here. So, indeed, it is necessary for us to take these steps as honestly as we know how. All of them. And I believe they should be taken as they're written. I was talking to a young people's group the other night. And there was 20 minutes talking and then an hour's question. And the first question I got was, just when is it a good time to take step four? And I said, you don't ask the wrong guy. I believe that the best time in the world to take step four is when you're taking one, two, and three. <laughs> Furthermore, I don't think you can take step four until you're taking one, two, and three. Because if you're going to take step four, you've got to have a little honesty. And you ain't going to get it until you're taking the first three. So I like them the way they're written. And I don't think it's any great profound thing. The first three steps are a decision. The fourth and fifth are action steps. Get yourself a large pad and a long pencil and start writing the inventory. Then you share it. These are action steps. Then you become willing, you've looked at it and shared it, and you become willing to give it away. And you give it away. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these because they humbly asking to remove our torture. And incidentally, I can ruin about 200 pieces a year for you right now. Because when somebody says to Bill, our beloved Bill, God rest his soul, why did you use shortcomings in one place and defects in another? You know? And he says, I don't know, I guess he just didn't want to use the same word twice. <laughs> now, you might be going to like them, argue, you just lost 200 pieces next year. <laughs> and then you get down again and there's a couple of action steps. Eight and nine. Those are the most beautiful steps in the program. You take those and you feel like you've had an inside shower. You feel clean all the way through. When you get through with that, I'm going to tell you one little story and then I'm going to get ready to quit. I didn't say I was going to quit. I said I was going to get ready to quit. 
Have we lost anybody yet? I don't think you take up a collection, so I'm not too worried about that. I think you might be all paid to get in here, but me. And I got to talk for the dinner, you know. So. <laughs> Two years ago, I got a call on a Friday night from a man in Whittier. I live in Laguna Beach. Whittier might be 25, 30 miles away. And this guy called me and he said, Chuck, I'm sitting here in my big chair with a six gun in my lap. And I'm going to blow my brains out. But he said, Jim told me not to shoot myself until I talk to you. And he said, now what do you got to say? <laughs> I said, well, old boy, you called me on a bad night. <laughs> I said, I've got, I, I'm talking tonight, I'm talking tomorrow night, and I'm talking Sunday night. But Monday night's open. And at 2.30 in the morning, we were right where we are right now. We made a list of all people we had harmed and became willing to make amends tomorrow. Made direct amends to such people wherever possible. Except when to do so would injure them or others. And this old boy was sort of a gambler, too. And he'd lost a lot of money he didn't have. And most of it he had lost to professional gamblers. And I was telling him, I said, now here's what you got to do. You got to go to these people and you got to say to them, look, I'm not the big shot. I would have had to believe. I'm an alcoholic. And I found a program that might let me live the rest of my life without drinking. And amongst the conditions, I have to make my amends. And that's why I'm here. Now I admit this debt. And I'm going to pay it as fast as I can. But I ain't got no money. Well, I said, Chuck, I can't do that. He said, he's a professional gambler. He'll kill me. And I said, so what? You won't have suicide on your mind. <laughs> and the old boy started laughing, and he's still laughing. He's walking the streets, a free man, and he don't owe anybody anything. So they didn't get it. If you haven't taken these two steps, take them. They're the most freeing steps I think in the entire program. And the, the reaction is immediate. It's fabulous what these things do. You feel like an inside shower. And now we got two more. 10, 11, and 12. Which bring us into the AA way of life. We continue to take personal inventory. Now that's our daily life. We don't have to go back, I think, and pull the catches out of the fire and beat our brains out with defective character. Forever, I see many of my friends doing it, and I think it's not the way my book reads. Had I had to do away with my defective character myself one at a time, I would have died drunk. But I don't read my book that way. It says we, we take the inventory, we share it, and then we become willing to give it away and give it away. And I'm convinced that anything I can give away here takes. I'm convinced of it. So I don't think 
we need to go back and turn back to look at today's job. See how near we left according to these principles today. And 11, if it weren't for 11, I wouldn't be here. I lived by 11 half for 25 years. Because you see, I can't run my life, can't run my business, can't run yours. Can't run nothing, but I don't have to. Because I've got step 11. I have sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious awareness of the living presence of the Almighty for 25 years. I prayed for knowledge of His will for me and the power carried out for 25 years. And it's very, very simple the way I do it. I'm a simple guy. I get up in the morning, I can look at and report to the duty. You know, just like that. Now I'm going to move it around. I'm going to do the best I can with what I got to say. All I want out of you is a little guidance and direction, power to carry out, just thank you, and to go about my business. Expecting guidance and direction in all things. And I get it. And you might say, how do you know? I never had it so good. Now, I don't know of any barometer that would please me better. I never had it so good. That's the only easy life I've ever known. The only good life that's ever been mine in my entire lifetime. And we still got one, one more step. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Now, that implies that we've taken the first 11. I don't think it's realistic to believe that we'll have a spiritual awakening as a result of 11 steps we took. <laughs> because having had a spiritual awakening has key results of these steps. We tried to carry this message to our bodies and practice these principles in all of our affairs. Now we have a lifetime job laid out for us. <clears throat> To carry this message to the alcoholic who still suffers, and to practice these principles in all of our affairs from now on, a lifetime job. A very beautiful job. The payoffs are great. You get sober and stay sober. Now, if that was all that had ever happened to me, it'd be enough. I came here with all the problems you can get after 25 years of but I didn't come here for answers to those problems. Not one of them. Not even to get my wife back or to love my kids. <laughs> Certainly not to find God. I came here hoping against hope. That I might find a way to live that didn't include what I had had it. And people like you said, here's the things we did. If you want these things, do these things. And I do them because I wanted to. And that's why I did it. <clears throat> and these are the things that happened. After six months of a meeting every night, I discovered that I was sober. That I had been for six months. I had attended meetings every night for six months. It was a great fear for me that I couldn't have it. That I didn't have enough left to get it. And by Jove, I wake up to the fact, I discovered that I haven't had a drink. Or a pill for six months. And that was the first discovery. In a series of discoveries that have lasted for 25 years. And are still going on. We discover after the fact, not before the fact. The second discovery was that something had happened in the household. 
Seemed like the war was over. You know? They quit chasing me every day with a blue paper. Something happened. They were living like a bunch of And that wasn't a bad discovery. The third one was that something had happened at the office. I was still down there trying to clean up that desk. And things were pretty good. Now, the first time I went down there, the old boy came in and showed me through the window. And I couldn't have kept him from it. Because, again, I was not in robust health. But he didn't do it. He recognized that something had happened to me. And he didn't show me through the window. I didn't know it, but he did. I didn't know it when I talked to my wife the first time after the little experience, but she did. She knew something had happened. But I was slow. I discovered it as went along. The next discovery was in my state of being, my, my living next. The quality of life was better than anything I had ever known. And that made it maybe two or three, four years when I made this great discovery. And that's not bad. And maybe five years, maybe six years. And I discover I'm never alone anymore. And this is something. I've got a God of my very own. Wherever I am, he is. And this is beautiful. This is fantastic. A God of my very own. And this is the meaning of the as we understood it in our book. You see, as we understood him doesn't mean that we've got to understand God. If that had been a condition for sobriety, I'd have died drunk. Because when I got here, it was a major operation for me to tie my own shoes. Thank God it isn't a condition that we have to understand the entity. The as we understood him has reference to an individual experience. My God, your God. And it's a discovery. I think that Alcoholics Anonymous just could be uh, sort of described as uncovering, discovering, and discarding. That's what I think it is. The first nine steps in the program is an uncovering process. That's digging out. That's clearing away the wreckage of the past. Then with Brother Lawrence, we can look deep within ourselves and find ourselves, which includes our relationship to each other and to God. And from then on, it's a matter of discarding the things that we have been conditioned to believe were true about this thing called life. They're absolutely contrary to our living experience. Discarding, discarding, discarding. And the more we discard, the freer we become. It's like going up in a balloon. You get up here and stop. And you have to throw over some ballast. Then you go here and stop. And you throw over some ballast. And you go on up here and stop. And you throw over some ballast. And that's the way we go upstairs. And we keep discarding. And it's very interesting. You know, I was conditioned to believe that you had to outthink, outperform, and outmaneuver in order to eke out a miserable living out of an unfriendly universe. The very cliches of life, you got to be there first, this is the most. The early bird gets the worm, the devil takes the hindermost. Then you got to get a good education and get out there and beat him to punch. I did that for 30 years. And ended up to old age of 43. 
in the modern spaceship. They say in, in every department of life, traitors, a husband, a father, businessman, man, and drunk. At 43. I started trying to rub out a record 25 years ago. And you can't rub out a record by thinking, I want, I don't want, I like, I don't like, I, yeah, 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 you can't make it. You rub out by doing something for somebody because you want to. Just because you want to. And I started doing that 25 years ago. And that's all I've done for 25 years. And infinitely more good has come into my life than in the entire previous 43. Well, everybody on earth, every authority on earth, said this was a getting life, I would still laugh at out loud. I know better. It never was a getting life. Old St. Francis knew what he's talking about. When he said, for it is in giving that we receive. Because it's proven in my own life. I never did anything to get anything for 25 years. And all the blessings of God in my Beautiful. Now, I said with Brother Lawrence, Brother Lawrence says, look deep within yourself. He's a Catholic, you know. <laughs> he was a karma like brother. He wasn't even a priest. I'm going to quote him, and I'm going to quote another one. Because I'm not Catholic. You can't accuse me of coming up here and proselyting. <laughs> but Brother Lawrence told his trouble friend, if you would find God, look deep within yourself, because you're in place you're going to find it. That's what we're talking about, uncovered the thing you've been looking for all your life. And then there was another one. He was a Dominican priest, incidentally. Uh, Brother Lawrence is a very good friend of mine. He lived back in 1666. <laughs> we were boys together. <laughs> and this other one was quite a little while ago, too. A few hundred years. He was a Dominican priest and he lived in Germany. He said, you've heard this nature of whores of vacuum. I tell you, the God of whores of vacuum and can't abide a vacuum any place on your head. And I was small. Now, says he, all you got to do is move out. Get empty of stuff. And automatically, you're full of God. Now, that comes nearer explaining what happened to me 25 years ago than anything else I ever did. Automatically, you're full of God. So, we come to see that freedom is an inside job. Freedom is an inside job. And we discover it by applying these principles to our lives one day at a time. We discover this great truth of life. And it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Now, I like to sit up there in my chair. Some of you have sat with me down there. Got a son down here called Tom. The Cardinal, you know. He freeloads on me every time he can get down there. He sits there and looks out the window with me. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. He sits and looks out that window. Now, quite often, the channel's full of snowbirds. You land lovers up here, that's a small sailboat. You know? And they're having a, a race. 
We live in this program for a little while. And the first thing you know, we're colorblind. We're race blind. We're creed blind. We're religion blind. And those sick walls are gone. I spent a little time in Belfast a couple of years ago. Besides the meeting, that was supposed to be just a short meeting. So I could get out and look at the rest of Ireland. Last of eight days. <laughs> that's all I saw. I never did get out of it. I just had eight days, and that's as long as it, that was as long as the meeting lasted. <laughs> and my hope. That's serious. <laughs> you know. It did his great privilege to run over a few Catholics. We were right in the middle of that war that's been going on for 300 years, you know. And as he ran over a priest, he got triple stamped. <laughs> His name was Danny. And Danny hadn't been sober too long. He's been 60 years sober now. But Danny hadn't been too long sober when he sponsored the Mancini. <laughs> he took him home with him and nursed him back to health because he'd keep himself to death. And the group that I ran around with didn't have any problems. This thing of ours, this little program of ours, had bridged the gap that all the priests and preachers for 300 years didn't bridge. And we didn't know a Catholic from a Protestant. And the thing that just makes me fall like a baby. They sent out a team, one Catholic and one Protestant, for every 12 step called a name. That's what I mean when I tell you. But if you and I could see what we belong to, it'd blind us. Truly, we are the most fortunate of all of God. Because through the accident of total failure, we come here to find society. And we find each other, and together we find God. God bless you, thank you.